Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a podcast that I'm really enjoying at the moment. Disorder is a weekly podcast from Goalhanger, the makers of The Rest is Politics and The Rest is History. It's tackling the really big questions like, how did the world get so disordered? What are the fundamental principles behind our current era of geopolitics? And how do seemingly disparate challenges from AI to climate change, to wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, to tax havens, to unregulated cyberspace, how do they all interact with each other and feed into our era of global enduring disorder? So check out the link in the show notes to follow the podcast immediately. A shoddy deal that wasn't even as good as the one Theresa May had, had, May had failed to get through some months earlier was nodded through in five minutes, as you rightly say, and now we're all paying the price. It's costing us a fortune being out of Europe. The Office for National Statistics say it's costing us £100 billion a year. That's £40 billion to the taxpayer. If you were to... Divide that by 52, far from us saving £350 million a week, as we were assured on the side of that bus, it's actually costing us £769 million a week. And this is something Parliament simply should never have allowed to happen. Hello and welcome to Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. The sense that our politics isn't working might be familiar to listeners of this podcast. If you heard last week's episode, you'll know that I had James O'Brien discussing his book, How They Broke Britain, which gets to the heart of these questions. But one area that James and I didn't touch on is our parliament. Britain's parliament, sometimes self-importantly calling itself the mother of parliaments, isn't working properly. 
Its members aren't scrutinising legislation properly, its regulations and procedures are largely broken, and it contributes to a wider sense of cynicism around our politics. Two seasoned parliamentarians, Nick Harvey and Paul Tyler, have focused in on the way Parliament currently works and how it should work, and have produced a short, easily readable book which contains a set of clear proposals around elections, parliamentary procedure, reform of the upper house and standards in public life. Although the book is just about Parliament, this book could be titled How to Fix Britain, because if its recommendations were followed, our national life would be improved immeasurably. It's actually called Can Parliament Take Back Control? and comes with strong endorsements from the Institute for Government, the Constitution Unit at University College London and the former Clerk of the House of Commons, Lord Lisfane. I was lucky to be able to speak to Paul and Nick and draw on their combined several decades of political experience to hear their recommendations for how to fix our politics. Here they are. Paul, Nick, welcome. We're talking today about your jointly authored book, Can Parliament Take Back Control? And of course, that title has all kinds of resonances of the recent political era. But I'd like to understand where this book originates. So maybe, maybe Paul, you, you could sort of give a little bit of the back history of the concept. Well, I came across a lecture, would you believe, from Lord Helsham. And if ever there was a true toy, that was he, who had in the Labour government way back in the 70s, warned that we were slipping remorselessly towards what he described as an elective dictatorship, because Parliament, frankly, wasn't doing its duty, wasn't doing its job. I think we forget sometimes that Parliament isn't just passing laws. It is there to hold the government to account. We elect individual MPs. We don't elect the president or, or, or indeed the government. We elect MPs to hold the government to account. And I was very struck during the process that we've been thinking about this, the extent to which Parliament has in recent years become increasingly lacking in doing that duty. It hasn't been coming up to, to its, doing its job properly. And that's very evident today, particularly in the aftermath of the, of the Johnson era. And um, picking up on that point, uh, if I could turn to you, Nick, uh, your book really treats with the huge failure of Parliament to grapple with some huge events that have happened in our recent political history. Uh, and, and listeners might recall that the the final uh, Brexit um, you know, agreement on which we actually left the EU, the final terms, I think was debated for about one day, which seems absolutely extraordinary. Uh, but perhaps you could sort of uh, draw, draw out a bit on that and also COVID in terms of what that tells us about how Parliament is or is not uh, sort of adequately doing its job. I think on both those things, Parliament has simply gone missing in action. Uh, if we look at the Brexit saga, which of course rumbled on in Parliament for a good many years, it was always clear that a majority of parliamentarians were opposed to Brexit and could see with the clarity perhaps the public lacked the damage it would do to us economically, socially and in particular in terms of our position on the world stage. And the purpose of Parliament is to have knowledge of and reflect upon all those sorts of things in a way that the, the public can't be expected to. So Parliament initially allowed a referendum to take place that never should have. And then after the referendum had taken place, 
just allowed the government to to drift, to vacillate, to fail to put a proper negotiating position to the EU. Uh, and the whole thing rumbled on and on and on. Eventually, a shoddy deal that wasn't even as good as the one Theresa May had, had, May had failed to get through some months earlier was nodded through in five minutes, as you rightly say, and now we're all paying the price. It's costing us a fortune being out of Europe. The Office for National Statistics say it's costing us £100 billion a year. That's £40 billion to the taxpayer. If you were to divide that by 52, far from us saving £350 million a week, as we were assured on the side of that bus, it's actually costing us £769 million a week. And this is something Parliament simply should never have allowed to happen. The yeah. cost equates to six pence on the basic rate of income tax. Six pence that a right-wing government could give you as a tax cut or a left-wing government could use to rebuild broken public services. But one way or the other, Parliament let this happen. And as we're listening to the COVID inquiry, it's clear that that very same government was completely out of control on COVID, wasn't following proper courses of procurement, of good governance. And the Parliament just allowed all this to happen. And what it exposes is the root cause of the problem that a prime minister, through political patronage and money, which I've no doubt Paul will say something about shortly, is able to exercise stranglehold over his party and therefore over Parliament. This just isn't good enough. This isn't what the Westminster model of democracy that we attempted to export to other former colonial countries was ever meant to be about. Yeah. And it's. I think a lot of people assume certain things about our political system that the you know the government proposes legislation you have a large you know a very large parliament and particularly if you include both house of lords and commons and that it's full of people who debate in detail line by line and all that sort of thing uh, but of course that is it is absolutely not what happens and i i'm very struck by the comparison with the maastricht debate which uh, you know w- w- went on for more than a year over what was undoubtedly an important bit of legislation versus the Brexit debate. But uh, Paul, if I might go to you uh, with your sort of historic um, uh, resonance, and I think you were first an MP back in the 1970s, um, was, was, were these things being done better then? And if they've changed, why, why have they changed? Well, curiously, in 1974, of course, there was a hung parliament. And who knows, we may be there again. And the interesting thing about a hung parliament is it immediately gives the MPs back the driving force. I mean, for example, we were able, that parliament, which I sat for just for a very short period, uh, we were able to prevent things happening and to hold the government to account in a much better way than if there's a big uh, artificial majority under under our present system. So there's an interesting distinction between 74 and uh, 24, as we may be very shortly, uh, when we don't have that sort of parliament at all. I think it's very important just to remember, though, uh, on this uh, issue that uh, you're quite right. I was there for Maastricht and uh, my God, it did keep us busy. But that isn't the whole job of parliament. Parliament isn't there just to pass laws. It's there to make sure that what the government is doing out with the legislation that it's going through. I mean, for example, King's speech just a, a few weeks ago, uh, the things that were really important weren't there at all. 
There was nothing done about the cost of living. There was nothing there effective about the whole climate change crisis, the NHS crisis, or our relationship with the Middle East, our policy objectives in the world generally. Ukraine, it's just not there, is it? And Parliament's job day by day is as much to make sure that the direction of policy out with the legislation is going in the right direction. And what I think is really important now is I don't think MPs recognise currently that that is such an important role on behalf of the country and their constituents. And I think there is a real problem here that if we are not very careful, we will have big governments with big majorities again and the uh, MPs will feel that they're accountable to the government rather than the other way around. Yeah, and, and that, I think that absolutely feels like uh, the way that governments behave now. So talking about um, sort of more technical matters, there are people here about Henry VIII powers, statutory instruments. Perhaps, Paul, you could explain what they are and, and what impact they have. Well, actually, I think I recommend reading the book. <laughs> we have a whole chapter there, but look, seriously. <laughs> Um, uh, when I was chief whip in the Commons, uh, one of my jobs was to make sure that one of my colleagues was always on all the committees that were looking at the detail of, of what's called secondary legislation, which is these regulations. And frankly, that was usually a, an opportunity to get somebody to do something they didn't want to do, and they could go and sit there quietly and uh, make uh, good use of their time in writing letters to their constituents. And I'm afraid that the other parties used to use it as a form of penalty for misbehaviour to be sitting on any secondary legislation. But the Lords, bless them, take this rather more seriously. And through the whole of the COVID experience, particularly, it was noticeable the government was putting more and more stuff through the Lords and, yes, the Commons, but they weren't taking much notice of it, in huge detail. The actual way in which the police were being asked to operate in terms of controlling what people were doing through the whole COVID crisis was pushed through in secondary legislation with remarkable little attention in the Commons and pretty limited attention in the Lords. And uh, there is a great deal of differentiation between the two. If you've got uh, what ends up as a statute, a bill, then it goes through so much inquiry and discussion and discussion outside Parliament. Secondary legislation wafts its way through at enormous speed. Henry VIII was famous, that's why it's referred to, uh, and you, you rightly mention it, because he used to introduce legislation by proclamation. But the interesting thing about that is that uh, system was abolished by the House of Commons, by Parliament, as soon as Henry died. Right. It's been revived in recent years by uh, by uh, Boris Johnson because it's a very neat way of pushing things through very fast and pretending it, it is as important in terms of the law and the enforcement of the law as a statute that has gone through all the processes of discussion, inquiry and consensus building. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned there that the role of the House of Lords and and it seems to me there's an interesting challenge. Uh, obviously, you are both um, former Liberal Democrat parliamentarians. I, I declare an interest. I'm a member of the party. Uh, we as a party and I, most progressive people in this country agree that um, the House of Lords is, is in urgent need of reform, that it's a very undemocratic institution. But in in the current setup, it feels as if it's only the House of Lords for all its flaws that is doing proper scrutiny of legislation. So how do we 
um, uh, avoid the risk of of having a parliament that's even less capable of of scrutinizing legislation if if we don't have this this rather quirky setup of of the current House of Lords? Maybe that's a question for Nick. There are, there are other ways of doing it um, than through the, the quirky one that you have described. I mean, the problems are in the Commons. It starts with a, a voting system which is fundamentally corruptive of what the public wants and delivers a large majority to a party which typically has only got about 40% of the vote. So 60% of the public want something else and they're not getting it. The system is then binary and gives it all effective power to the party in, in office. And Parliament fails really to do anything much about it. So against that backdrop, the House of Lords, despite its uh, anomalies, is almost bound to be more effective because it's not so riven with party politics. And the members of the House of Lords are not having to sort of attend to microscopic constituency matters. So they've got more time and space to get on with this serious job of, of scrutinising and looking at legislation. But if you look at the sort of proposals which have been made for a democratic second chamber, typically these have involved electing people to serve one long-term, perhaps 10, 12, 15 years, but not to be able to seek a second term, you can yeah. do a lot of good during a spell that long, but you won't be beholden to party whips and structures. You won't be grubbing around looking for ministerial office. You just won't be caught up in the same milestone that the House of Commons is. But there seems to me a good chance you could bring a lot of the expertise that the House of Lords currently contributes with political and democratic legitimacy, which would empower a second chamber when it felt the need to stand up to the first chamber and the government of the day. And it, it wouldn't be beholden by Salisbury conventions and ping pong and all other strange bits of our constitution, brackets unwritten, um, that uh, apply at the moment. It would be a healthier system of checks and balances if the second chamber could do the best bits of what the Lords do, but with political legitimacy. Yeah. Um, and if we had a more functional uh, legislature, would it look a bit like what we experienced in the rather sort of febrile period after Theresa May's disastrous 2017 election, when she, she lost control of Parliament? And of course, you had a very activist speaker, John Burko, clearly a controversial figure, but but in in one respect at least prepared to uh, make life difficult for the for the government and allow um, you know debate in in the House of Commons, um, is that what a, a functioning Parliament looks like? Because a lot of people uh, sort of look back at that era and 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 feel it was it was rather it, it was full of a lot of sort of um, um, it was full of people sort of showing off rather than actually achieving something. Well, it was Maybe one that's a question there, for Paul. Yeah, there's one element there which I think is very important, and that is you really can't have a situation where the elected parliament of the country, the elected MPs, have no say in when they're sitting and what they're doing, what their business is. I mean, the idea that the government of the day could say, actually, we don't want you here at all for the next few weeks while we fiddle things, which is what effectively Jacob Rees-Mogg did 
yeah. in his att- to attempt to prorogue Parliament yeah. and went lied to the Queen in the, in the process. Uh, and, and one of the things, interestingly, that has been running through this whole discussion for many years is it's it's absurd that the leader of one party, if you like, the captain of one political team, decides when to blow the final whistle. You know, mm. if halfway through a, fo- a football match, uh, one team captain was able to say, look, actually, we're winning at the moment. Let's stop. Let's have an election. So the idea that that, too, should be a matter for somebody sitting in number 10, for his personal, perhaps, reasons, rather than the, the, the nation's good, or indeed the elected representative. So a very important part of what we're proposing is that the Commons should take back control over its own business, its own timetable to a greater extent, and when it sits in terms of a dissolution and a new parliament, and when it's prorogued for a gap in its programme. It is an absurdity, and it's not an absurdity that's repeated in other parts of the world, that the the leader of a political party fixes all that in this country. Yeah. I mean, that... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sorry, Nick, go ahead. Well, I've had the extraordinary privilege in the years since I um, left Parliament in the Lib Dem wipeout of 2015 of um, going abroad to various developing countries and um, working on programmes with parliaments, governments, ministers in those developing countries. Most of them have parliaments a lot smaller than ours, a point you made earlier, Arthur, which does mean that their committees have to both look at legislation and scrutinise the operation of government and persuading them all that they must give more time to that latter aspect, even if it's at the expense of the former, is sometimes tricky. But all these parliaments have had complete control of their own agenda, their own terms of business, their timetable and what they're going to do. And they summon ministers, even very powerful ministers in some of these countries in the Middle East and elsewhere. But in in every case I've seen, government has to dance to the tune of Parliament, and it's an absurdity in our Westminster setup that the leader of the House, who is a government minister, the business, the timetable, and the terms. And you ask about that two-year period of Theresa May's government. After I lost in 2015, people said to me, 
oh, do you miss it? Would you like to be in Parliament? And I would say at that time, well, I wouldn't really have wanted to have been the ninth Lib Dem in a Parliament as bad as this. But actually, the following one, the Theresa May hung Parliament, which I only narrowly missed getting back into, would have been a lot more rewarding. And I, I think that was one of the better periods in parliamentary terms or, or, in recent time, because, uh, I mean, she was bungling the Brexit negotiations badly, but at least Parliament wasn't actually letting her get away with it. They, they yeah. were keeping her feet to the fire and dragging it on. And yes, well, there may have been people showing off, as you, as you say, Arthur, but one of the problems of... Having a parliament of 650 is if you want to get noticed, you have to show off a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, so if, if, if what's interesting, what I'm learning here is that, that things that in this country might be regarded as a as a sort of slightly fringe concept have, have been working perfectly normally all over the world. Um, but I suppose one one legislature which we can look at, which does appear to be very dysfunctional, is is uh, in the U.S. Congress, and of course, you know they were without a speaker for for, for several weeks, and and they 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 face even basic sort of legislation to, for example, to pr promote certain people in the armed forces can't go through because of ultra partisan politics. So, are there any risks in uh, empowering a legislature, uh, which seems like a wholly democratic idea that that it could be sort of hijacked by those kinds of forces, particularly as I think, you know, our own Conservative Party seems to like to sort of ape what the Republicans do in America. I think it's fair to say that we shouldn't be exa examining the uh, institutions without thinking of how they get there. Yeah. Um, it, their electoral system is as peculiar as ours, actually. Yeah. And while in our book, Nick and I decided we should not spend too much time on that, A, because as Lib Dems, everybody, they all, they would, wouldn't they? And B, because lots of other people are doing this rather effectively at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Labour Party uh, at the grassroots level has changed dramatically, for example. But the electoral system in the States is even more peculiar than ours. I mean, if you look at the way in which their districts are fixed, gerrymandering is extraordinary to get the right vote in the right place. The relationship between the, the uh, federal government and the state governments is very odd indeed and goes right back in their history. So I don't think just because they have a, a, a very bipolar system uh, of government, there were two big parties based on some curious electoral arrangements, we should necessarily think that that means that we shouldn't have our own system rather better organized and should have actually a better electoral system. So I would suggest that we look at some of the other examples around the world. I mean, New Zealand is the one that I think is so fascinating. Okay, it's a smaller country. But yes, uh, the public have a much better say in what happens in their parliament because of their electoral system. Yes, their parties are less dominant in terms of what happens. And they and indeed in other uh, former uh, well, Commonwealth countries and others of a similar nature, in, for example, in, in Europe, do seem to manage to operate their legislation in a much better way. And as we keep saying, hold their executive to account more effectively day by day. Yeah. Um I, I want to go on to talk about money and finance, because I know that's something of interest to both of you. And I think, Paul, in particular, you've you've sort of worked on this over the years. Uh, it, it feels as if the, the system is very rotten in this country 
and and uh, you know both the House of Commons and the House of Lords inadequate controls both around election spending but also funding individual politicians. Could you say a bit about what you see as the problems with the current system, and then perhaps what how we might be able to change that? The biggest problem is simply this, that if a party has a lot of money, they can, as the law has now been changed, pour it into individual constituencies where they think that they can win. It's way out of control. The system, which dated way back to 1883, was that candidates and their agents had to be held responsible for everything that was spent in terms of trying to get somebody elected. And Nick and I would have watched every penny and made sure our agents did too. But that's really gone by the board now because the government has managed with a change in legislation to make it possible for the National Party to pour in millions, literally millions, in a perhaps 120, 150 marginal seats. And alongside that, there is no real control over a lot of the donations that come in. For all we know, Mr. Putin in the Kremlin can actually put through what's called an unincorporated association quite serious money, not just, of course, into elections, but also into referendum. Yeah. Uh, it's significant that in the last few hours of the, the EU referendum, yeah. that millions were spent by people who then disappeared. We don't know who yeah. they were. They weren't the official campaigns. They simply put money into those campaigns through social media. Whether it carried the day, we don't know. But a lot of money is now spent by people who we can't track down. And that is really dangerous. Just an extra to that. We've even managed to extend the franchise, the ability to vote, to people who've once upon a time been on a register in this country. It's very difficult to check that. So if somebody said, oh, well, I used to live in Devon in 1970, uh, and I've since retired to a tax haven in the Caribbean, uh, but I'm thinking of putting some money in, and they're eligible to do so without any check or, or, or thing. And it's a big change. Uh, we are therefore encouraging millionaires to be the issue rather than the millions of votes in terms of determining elections. And so, the, and the point here is that these are these are new changes. This isn't a case of an old system being exploited. The government has actually made it easier for what appears like a sort of untransparent financing to, to take place. Exactly. Yeah. We were governed by a piece of legislation, the Representation of the People Act, which, with periodic updating, dates back to the 19th century. But in 2001, the political parties, elections and referendums came in. And we warned at the time that there was... Um, a chink of light opening up to the sort of abuse that Paul has just described. But in the 22 years since then, it's just got progressively worse and worse. And the Conservatives have upped and upped the limits as to what can be spent by parties who then pour it into key seats that Paul has described. People compare it with America. Actually, thankfully, we've not quite reached that stage yet. The sums of money that flow through American politics are gargantuan compared yeah. with those in British politics, which is effectively for sale, but at a remarkably low price. And if you sort of look at the propensity of a wealthy Russian to buy Chelsea Football Club and then pour millions of pounds into it, sometimes buying players who 
um, didn't even make it into the first team, that the sums expended would buy the entire political system, all three parties and all their election campaignings, um, for, for, for years on end, all yeah. for what Chelsea paid for a reserve team left. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, it is absolutely nonsensical, the situation that we've got ourselves into. And, and this suggestion that Russian money... Um, finds its way into this equation is not fanciful or, or um, a conspiracy theory. It's a fact that the Russians put money into all Western uh, election processes one way or the other. They're very subtle operators and they're very good at it. And And even Conservative Party chairmen, when invited to justify donations to their own local funds from people with very Russian-sounding names um, can, can be very naive about quite what they think that money is or where it's come from. Definitely. And I, I couldn't agree more. And obviously, we've got the cases that we know about where it's somebody who's, you know, maybe spouse was a minister in the Russian government. And then you've got, the, as Paul indicated, the uh, structures such as unincorporated associations where who knows how, how this money has reached us. Um, I... I, I wanted to, um, we, we've talked quite a lot about sort of uh, the, the current situation. And of course, your book, I'm sure, is full of interesting proposals for how things could change. Um, in, in, in the sort of roughly 10 minutes, perhaps we've got left, perhaps we could, we could give a teaser of some of those things, enough, sufficient to make people go out and buy the book. Um, so, Paul, perhaps you could uh, start off. Well, I think the important thing is for us to have an attitude which is much more questioning about whether the Brits always get it right. You know, this world-beating political system that we claim they have, frankly, there's an awful lot of people who don't think it is. Yeah. And that includes a great many people in the country. Yeah. And the disillusion with our political system is really serious. So, uh, yes, the proposals are there. But frankly, Arthur, I think what's more important is people to just be more questioning and demanding of our political system in the run-up to the general election. I want to make this really clear. This book is probably not for great readership in the sense of everybody should have it at their right hand at bedtime. It might help with um, somnolence, but that's a different story. What it really is intended to do is to make people think about what sort of parliament we should be looking forward next year. Uh, but before the 1997 election. Both Nick and I were in discussion with a lot of people across party, but particularly, of course, with Robin Cook in the Labour Party, about how we could try and make our political system work better for the country. And there isn't that mood at the moment. There should be. That's why we've written this book. That's why we want people to talk about these issues. They don't have to follow every suggestion that we have. What they do have to do is to say, up with this, we will not put and that applies particularly to those who may think that they're going to be in government in a year's time. So yeah. the discussion has got to get its way into the system. It won't be good enough, frankly, for an incoming government just to say we're going to be better than the last one. We've got to have better governance. And that doesn't just mean a question of uh, changing the pity people at the top. It means that the members of the next parliament have got to say, Look, it's our responsibility to make this system work better. We're not going to be waiting on number 10 and whoever happens to be there to tell us what to do. Yeah, I, uh, that sounds absolutely right. And Nick, perhaps a question for you. Um, the, uh, you know, Paul's reference to 1997, I think, is really interesting because 
there are aspects of this current political cycle that feel similar. Increasingly, it looks like the Labour Party will do very well in the next election. They might have a big uh, majority in the Commons. And then there'll be this assumption that, well, we're Labour, so we're better anyway, and you can trust us. And of course, you know, we could debate that. That's probably for another podcast. But but what you're talking about is structural change. So if we are in a situation where there is a new government and perhaps it does have a big majority and therefore it has all the same powers that the current government has, maybe with a slightly less cynical um, bunch of people running it. How, how do how do people that care about structural change sort of continue that that argument? Well, you're quite right. Our political system is broken. We are in a state of complete democratic decay. And if we have a changing of the guard at an election, but it's then just business as usual, we're not really putting that right. And I agree with you. I think it would probably be a more benign elective dictatorship than we've seen in recent years, but it would still remain nevertheless a dictatorship, which one day would give way again to a more malign force. So it's an opportunity to give the whole thing um, a sorting out. And I do believe that Keir Starmer is the sort of person by temperament and, and background who might be persuadable to do at least some of the things that Paul and I suggest in our book. The problem is Britain has been obsessed with the idea of, of strong, powerful leadership. It hasn't done us an awful lot of good. You can look at systems like the German one, which is much more um, pluralist in the way it shares political power out, and they have prospered as a result. We are the most centralised country in the democratic world. We have a parliament that is, is supine in the face of government, and even within government, all the power really concentrates right at the top of it. Hailsham was absolutely right. This really is an elective dictatorship. And if we're going to have um, a process of, of renewal, a pressing of the reset button, the beginning of the new parliament really would be the ideal moment to do it. Perhaps I'm hoping for too much. Perhaps Labour will just want to seize the levers of power as they currently exist and um, manoeuvre them to their own advantage. But in the course of their busy day, it would be useful if they would make time for thinking about um, how they could renew this for the future in a way that won't lead us back to a latter-day Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings in years to come. It feels as if um, within the Labour movement, uh, there, there has been a, quite a sort of considerable change of, of, of attitude to these questions. And and you mentioned, of course, Robin Cook. And I, and I know that in that era, he was sometimes a bit of a lone voice in cabinet for political reform. Whereas I think now it, it, you, you get the impression that there is a lot more uh, sort of readiness to c consider that. So is is there is part of this sort of this big this debate discussion one that has to be had uh, sort of within the Labour Party to convince some of the more sort of um, structurally conservative elements to, to understand the, 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 the kind of need for change? I think undoubtedly, yes. And uh, we are having conversations, of course, but they're very informal. They have to yes. be in our curious system. Uh, I mean, there's nothing like as much uh, useful discussion going on as I used to have, not just with Robin Cook, but actually with George Young, who was mm. then 
in the shadow. When Robin Cook was leader of the House and I was occupying that role as the Lib Dem and, and George Young was on the Conservative side, we made some modest improvements. I mean, we'd made the, the select committees more effective, but it was tiny compared with the challenge that we now have. I, I, I am by nature an optimist. I wouldn't be a liberal if I wasn't an optimist, for God's sake. But I do get pretty depressed. For example, uh, we referred earlier to the whole issue of what to do about the House of Lords. I mean, there was a perfectly good bill there in 2012, which had a huge majority, which met all the needs of people that said yeah. that it must be too powerful, it must be more democratic and have a mandate. And yet, you know, that was killed off by silly party games between the then opposition and the Tory rebels. Now, we, that we can't afford in this country. The people are disillusioned already so much. And the real danger, frankly, is if we don't get Parliament sorted and give it back some real effective role, then people are going to say, well, what's the point of it? Yeah. Let's have, a, you know, a president elected. Would you want President Blair or indeed President Cameron? No, or indeed President Johnson? We are in danger of allowing this thing just to slip away, just from neglect. Yeah. Well, I think um, on that slightly sobering but, but important note, I think it's a great place to finish this discussion. Paul and Nick, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. If you want to make sure you never miss another episode, just click subscribe now. If you enjoyed it, why not give us a great review or recommend it to a friend? Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the theme music is by Matty Benbrook. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.